Last week, we continued, or we resumed our Old Covenant series, where basically after preaching all the way through Genesis and preaching through Exodus up to chapter 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments. Now, instead of proceeding with Exodus 21 and 22 and 23 and so forth, we're looking at the Old Covenant systematically, concept by concept, instead of chronologically. And so we've spent some time looking at the Old Covenant, what it is, its nature, etc. And we've spent some time beginning to look at um, the law, and we've seen a threefold division of the law into moral, civil, and ceremonial. All of this is available in our sermons that are up on our website. Uh, if you want to go back and listen from the beginning, I trust that you'll find it profitable and helpful. We're picking up now, after looking at some civil laws, we're picking up now with an examination of the ceremonial laws. And last week I preached on Hebrews 9.24, in which the ceremonial uh, observations are called copies of the true things. And the main point of last week's message was real simple. It was just that the ceremonies of the Old Covenant are copies of the true things, the true things being the things that pertain to Jesus and His ministry. And so the Old Covenant ceremonies foreshadow and, and picture and give us concepts and categories that we need to properly understand the work of Jesus. So it's the same God who gave us the blood of bulls and goats who also inspired the author of Hebrews to say it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So in other words, God gave us a system in the beginning which wasn't actually intended to take away sin. It was impossible from the beginning. But what it did was it helped us understand the nature and the work of the one who was coming who would actually take away sin. So when we read the Old Covenant ceremonies, we should be asking ourselves, what can we learn about Jesus and the work of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus? These are the true things that this passage is about. What is, what is Leviticus 16, therefore, truly about? Most ultimately, Jesus and His ministry. So last week, we just basically looked at that concept that the Old Covenant ceremonies are copies of the true things. This week, we're going we're gonna to delve in specifically to Leviticus 16, and we're going to look in a little bit more detail at fleshing out this concept. In what way does Leviticus 16 speak to us about the ministry of Jesus. And we'll work from broad concepts to specific details. I want to begin by raising a couple of tensions in the biblical storyline. You remember that when God created Adam and Eve, they were placed where? In the Garden of Eden. And then they sinned, and, and what happened? They were cast out of the Garden. Now, here's a question you may or may not know the answer to. In which direction did Adam and Eve travel when they left the Garden of Eden? East. They went east. We read in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 24 that God drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So they were exiled to the east. Therefore, 
to the west was Eden, was that place where they had communion with God, where they experienced the presence of God, where God would walk with Adam in the cool of the day. Now they live east of Eden. Secondly, in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 7, God says something rather puzzling. He says, in, well, let me begin at verse 6. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. And here's, here's where the problem comes in, or the puzzling thing comes in. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Well, who are the guilty? It's those with iniquity and transgression and sin. So, which is it? Is God going to clear the guilty and thereby forgive iniquity and transgression and sin? Or is God by no means going to clear the guilty and punish iniquity and transgression and sin? How can God say both things about Himself? So these are a couple of tensions in the biblical storyline which have been raised so far. Adam and his posterity have been cast out of the garden to the east. And they have become people who are cumbered down with iniquities and transgressions and sins. And God is one who will by no means clear the guilty. But God says that He is also one who will forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. So we're, we're left here with this big question, how? How can God dwell with man again? How can we move westward again into God's presence? How can God forgive our iniquity and transgressions and sins if it is that He's one who will by no means clear the guilty? This is where we're at in the biblical storyline so far. Leviticus 16 is the central ceremony in the Old Covenant system of ceremonies. And it resolves these tensions. The entrance to the tabernacle was on which side of the structure? North, south, east, or west? It was on the east. Which means to go into the tabernacle, you had to travel west. Now, when you first walked in, the first thing that you come to is the courtyard. And then as you travel further west, you come into the holy place. And then as you travel the furthest to the west, you come into the most holy place. It was in this westward, most westward of places, the Holy of Holies, where this um, Day of Atonement centered, or which it centered around and revolved around. The high priest would move westward into the tabernacle and into God's presence. And he would do so with the names of the twelve tribes of Israel engraved upon his shoulders and over his heart. 
according to the description of the priestly garments in Exodus chapter 39. In the Holy of Holies, he would make atonement for his own sins and the sins of the people whom he represented. And this is the means by which God can be the God who by no means clears the guilty. He requires atonement. He requires that his just wrath be propitiated. And yet, he has devised a way to justly forgive iniquities and transgressions and sins. And so you see a westward movement of the people back into God's presence. And you see a resolution of this difficulty of how a God can be holy and just and yet at the same time forgive iniquity and transgression and sins. So that's big picture. Let's look at the ceremonies in greater detail. And I want you to see that there are basically six sections of Leviticus 16. First, there's an introductory summary in verses 1 to 10. 1 to 10 basically outlines what the rest of the chapter is going to be about. Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil. And here's where, here's where getting our emphasis on the right syllable is helpful. It's not, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place. It's, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place. In other words, it's not, you don't just waltz in to the holy place. Don't just come whenever you feel like it. We see the context here of Leviticus 16 is after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. That's back in Leviticus chapter 10. And what we see happen in Leviticus chapter 10 was Nadab and Abihu offered up to God sacrifices that God had not commanded. It wasn't sacrifices that God had prohibited. It was simply sacrifices that God had not commanded. And they, so they offered up to God that which they had not been commanded to do. When it says the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died, and the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place. A lot of scholars think that this is in contrast to Nadab and Abihu who basically took it upon themselves to say, hey, let's go into the most holy place and offer up these sacrifices. Surely God will be pleased if we come into His presence and bring Him some sacrifices. Surely God will be pleased. But what happened was that God appeared in the cloud over the mercy seat, verse 2, and struck Nadab and Abihu down. What we see First and foremost is that we approach God on God's terms. God determines how He will be worshipped. And we need to follow His instructions. We worship according to His prescription. We don't try to decide what we think God would probably like. We, it's not just that we avoid what He's prohibited. We don't even do things in worship unless God has commanded them. Or we see them by positive example in His Word. What God is saying to, to Aaron, though, is it's not that you can't come at any time 
into the holy place. It's you can't come at just any time whensoever you feel. When you come is in this way, verse 3, and at this time, as the rest of the passage makes clear, on the tenth day of the seventh month. This is how you need to be dressed. These are the offerings you need to bring with you. This is the ceremony which will ensue, etc., etc. So this is God describing how the Day of Atonement is to go. In verse... So 1 to 10 is kind of the summary. And then in 10 to 14, we see that the priest first makes atonement for himself and his house. In 15 to 19, we see that the priest makes atonement for the people and for their holy place via the sin offering. In verses 20 to 22, we see that the priest makes atonement for the people via the live goat to be turned over to Azazel. And then in verses 23 to 28, we see the concluding some uh, ceremonies. And then in verses 29 to 34, we see the concluding summary. Okay, so what we're going to focus on tonight is the main three after the introductory summary. So there's the introductory summary, there's the concluding summary, we're not going to worry about those tonight. And then there's the concluding ceremonies, and we're not going to worry about those either. What we're going to look at is the ceremony, the core ceremonies of the Day of Atonement, where the priest makes atonement for himself and for the people, and he does it by means of this bull and then the two goats. So let's look at each of these uh, in turn. First, we see in verses 15 to 19 that the priest, or pardon me, in verses, 15, in verses 10 to 14, that the priest first makes atonement for himself and for his house. Verses 11 to 14, sorry. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. In Hebrews chapter 5, we read that every high priest chosen among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. The priests are sinners too. The descendants of Levi, Aaron and his sons, they're all sinners. So when you go deal with the high priest of ancient Israel, you're dealing with a holy man in the sense that you're dealing with a man that is set apart to the service of the Lord. But you're not dealing with a holy man in the sense that he is morally perfect. He, he himself has to offer sacrifices of atonement for his own sins and for the sins of his house. You can't have a priest come in with an offering for somebody else when he himself has sin that needs to be punished. 
Otherwise, how could his offering possibly be efficacious? It's like God would appear in the cloud over the mercy seat and say, "What? why are you in here? You don't deserve to be in here. You don't deserve to have an audience with me. I will strike you dead now rather than accept your sacrifice, rather than accept the offering that you bring. We cannot have a morally blemished priest. Now, here's the problem. He has to offer sacrifices not only for himself, but for his house. And it doesn't say if he sinned, and if his descendants sin, then they need to offer. It's just assumed he and his house need these sacrifices to be offered. Now, what if a high priest has a long career and spends 15 or 20 years worth of days of atonement? Can he just say, well, my sins were atoned for last day of atonement, so I don't need to offer it again? No. He has to offer this atoning sacrifice year after year. Now, the book of Hebrews picks up on this and says, if those sacrifices had actually been effective, why would they have to be offered again and again? So, the thoughtful Israelite of ancient times would look and be like, wait a second, these guys need to offer up sacrifices for their own sin. So how could they represent me before God? Well, one might argue, well, he might turn to his neighbor and say, pose this question, and his neighbor might say, well, the blood of bulls and goats. But again, the thoughtful Israelite could reply and say, but if the blood of bulls and goats are actually taking away sin, actually atoning for sin, then why does he have to offer it year after year? So we got a problem here because we have an imperfect high priest who himself is blemished. How is he going to get rid of our sin if he has been unable to even get rid of his own sin? In verses 15 to 19, we see that the priest makes atonement for the people and their holy place via the sin offering. So this is the first goat which is killed. There's two goats. One is killed and one is sent out into the wilderness to Azazel, which we'll talk about in a moment. But the first goat is killed in verses 15 to 19. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people. And it says in verse 16, Thus, or in this way, he shall make atonement for the holy place. Now, obviously this goat then dies not only for the people, but also for their holy place. It says that he's making atonement for the holy place. He shall do, so shall he do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. So the picture here is that because the holy place is among an unclean people, even that place is not holy enough. Even the holy place is not holy enough and needs atonement made for it. So the picture here is of this place in the center of the camp, which is supposed to be holy, but it's like we can imagine that like bacteria or a virus encroaches and spreads. It's almost like the uncleanness of the people encroaches all year long into even the holy place so that the holy place isn't holy enough. 
And so the sins of the people and also the, the holy place itself needs atonement to be made. So this place isn't even a holy place. And this priest isn't even a holy ple- ple- priest. And we are not a holy people. And then in verses 20 to 22, the priest makes atonement for the people via the live goat, which is to be turned over to Azazel. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. So these are, these are the three things that we're going to focus on tonight. They are summarized in verses 6 to 10. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and his house. First one, then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But on the goat, but the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. How do these things tell us and show us about Jesus? Well, I think with respect to the first one, Aaron, the high priest, making atonement for himself and for his house, what we see is that we need a holy high priest who has no sin to be able to go in If he has sin, all he can ever do... Let me me say it like this a little bit more plainly. If Jesus had sin, all he ever could have done would be die for his own sin. You see? It, It can only be if he is sinless that his offering up of himself could actually be for us. We need a high priest without sin. And Jesus is presented to us by contrast to these priests in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5 tells us about all of these priests who themselves were beset with weakness. And they had to offer sacrifices first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. But Hebrews goes on to explain to us that these were copies of the true things, but they weren't the true things themselves. The true high priest is Jesus And he doesn't die because of his own sin, but he ever lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him. So he is able to save us to the uttermost. Unlike these guys that weren't actually able to effect a proper atonement. And so the the first point we come to by way of contrast, unlike the priest on the Day of Atonement, Jesus is the high priest who can skip the first ceremony and doesn't need to offer up a bull for his own sin. 
with respect to these two goats now. We see the first goat killed to make atonement for the people. What did God say to Adam in the garden? On the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The wages of sin, that means what we earn, what we deserve, what we merit. Your wages are not a gift, they're what you're due. When you go to your employer, you're not asking him for a gift on payday. Hey, give me what you owe me. What God owes us for our sin, the wages of sin, is death. This lamb shows us that death is the result, the just result, the just penalty of sin. But the Lamb shows us that God may reckon one being's death as if it was another being's death. That there may be a substitute on behalf of the people. And so we see several layers of symbolism and representation happening here as the priest offers up this lamb as a substitute for the people. First of all, we have Jesus, the high priest, going westward into God's presence, bearing our names on His shoulders and over His heart as the priest of the Old Covenant bore the names of the people of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, on his chest piece and on his shoulder pieces. This prefigures how Jesus carries us on his shoulders into God's presence. And he not only carries us on his shoulders into God's presence, but he carries us in his heart, over his heart, westward, into God's presence, as it were. Notice what it says here in verse 17. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. So all of the people of Israel had to wait outside the tabernacle while the priest and the priest alone is in there making atonement for them. Everything depends upon the priest. All our hope is in the priest. He has gone into God's presence to represent us, to carry us in Him, on His shoulders, over His heart, into God's presence to make atonement for us. Does this make you think of that great Reformation cry? Christ alone. It should. None of us were with Jesus as He hung on the cross. None of us were with Jesus as He went, not into a holy place made with hands, but into heaven itself to make atonement on our behalf. All our hope was in the high priest acting on our behalf in that heavenly tabernacle. All of our hope was that He had our names written on His ephod and on His shoulder piece. And that He was in there making sufficient atonement for us. 
Christ alone, as the high priest alone, ministered in the holy place here in Leviticus chapter 16. So Jesus is represented by the priest who works alone on behalf of the people here in the most holy place in Leviticus chapter 16. Everyone else had to wait outside the tabernacle with bated breath. Was he successful? And on Sunday morning, many years later, when that stone was rolled away and Jesus rose from the tomb, I guess he was successful. Otherwise, he'd still be dead. Our high priest has gone into the most holy place and has made sufficient atonement for our sins and has returned to us, showing us that atonement has been made. He wasn't struck dead by God's presence in the cloud over the mercy seat because there was some defect in him or in his sacrifice. But he has successfully made atonement and he has risen, which testifies that all his work in there is done. But Jesus is also the Lamb of God. And what we see is that when Jesus hung on the cross, the wrath of God was poured out upon Him. Ephesians lists a number of sins and it says, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. When Jesus hung on the cross though, He bore the wrath that we rightly deserved for our sin. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter according to Isaiah 53. He suffered and He died in our place to propitiate the wrath of God, to turn it away from us toward Himself. And this is what this first goat did on the Day of Atonement. Instead of the people dying, instead of God appearing before the people of Israel and striking them dead for their sins, God appeared before the people of Israel and struck this first goat dead because of their sins. Jesus is the substitute prefigured by the first goat in the ceremonies of the Day of Atonement. This is one that we talk about a lot, and rightly so. Bearing shame and scoffing Ruth, in my place, condemned he stood, and he died for me. He died for me. Now, the second of the goats, this live goat, which is on which the lot fell for Azazel. Verse 8, And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. If you have an ESV, you have a footnote here, which says the meaning of Azazel is uncertain. Possibly the name of a place or a demon. Wow, those are radically different uh, interpretations. I lean towards it being a demon, actually. For, these, for this reason. In Leviticus chapter 17, we read um, that if anyone kills an animal, and remember this is in the wilderness without plentiful access to animals. So it actually would have been more rare to kill and eat an animal when they were traveling through the wilderness than it would be once they settled in the land and the animals multiplied. So it was more of a rarity. In Leviticus 17, in the beginning, 
we read that if anyone kills an animal, they have to kill it at the temple. And the reason for this was that sacrifices were to be offered to God at the temple. But, but there's a problem in Israel that in chapter 17 and verse 7, we read that some people were sacrificing their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. So it seems that God made this rule that, look, if you kill an animal, it has to be at the tent of meeting. Because that way nobody could go sacrifice to a goat demon and then be like, oh, I was just having a barbecue in the wilderness. Right? So it seems that this was a pragmatic thing to curb idolatry. Look, if you kill an animal at all, whether it's to eat it or to sacrifice it, it has to be at the tent of meeting. Kill it there and then you can take it home and have a barbecue. Right? But the, the Lord wanted to curb this um, idolatry of goat demons. Now, given the fact that there are goat demons in Leviticus chapter 17, and given the fact that in Old Testament scriptures and in the ancient mindset, the wilderness was the place of demons. And it was like order and all of these things were in towns and like in inhabited places. But it was in the wilderness, in uninhabited places. The haunt of jackals and the owls and the birds of prey. Like you see this kind of language even in some of the prophets out there, right? And especially with respect to Israel, inside the camp is the place of cleanness. Outside the camp is the place of uncleanness. Inside the camp is the place of the presence of God. Outside the camp is the place outside the presence of God. Especially in this ancient mindset, it seems to me that there probably was some demon called Azazel and this goat was to be led away and left for Azazel. Now in saying that, let me be clear. God doesn't have to appease or offer anything up to any demon, including Satan himself. There was a theory of atonement which developed in the Middle Ages, which was that not only did God ha- did we have to answer to God for our sin, but we had to answer to Satan for our sin. That there was actually some offering due to Satan because we owed him something. Since we had become his slaves, if we wanted to be free, we had to pay something to Satan. And so Christ's atonement, this theory developed in the Middle Ages, Christ's atonement was offered partly to God and partly to Satan. Well, that's heretical. That's not at all the way that the Scripture presents it to us. So seeing this live goat go to Azazel is not to say that Yahweh recognized the legitimacy of Azazel's claim upon the sinful people of Israel. Rather, let me explain it to you like this. Being with God, in God's presence, walking in holiness is good for you. It's safe. It's better. It's not as scary. Being outside of God's presence, away from God's people, outside of God's protection, where Satan has you in his domain, that's scary. That's unhealthy for you. It doesn't lead to thriving and flourishing. None of these goats that were led into the wilderness to Azazel returned. You understand? So I think what was, what was happening here in this passage was God was saying, get this sin outside the camp where it belongs, away from me, 
away from my presence, away from my people, but also away from my protection. Let this sin be carried out where the demons are. And let Satan or Azazel do what he will with his goat, with these people. Listen here. Jesus is the Lord of hell. But just because Jesus is the Lord of hell, it doesn't mean that you're not going to be tormented by demons in hell. It's not going to be good to be out there with the demons in the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So I think what was happening here from my perspective, admittedly there is some uncertainty, I can't say it conclusively. I think what was happening here in this perspective was we see that not only did God's wrath have to be propitiated, but the people actually had to have their sins removed from them as far as the east is from the west. Their sins actually had to be gone, gotten rid of. And so what we see here is that the priest laid both his hands on the head of the live goat and confessed over it, what? Iniquities and transgressions and sins. Have you heard that one before? Exodus 34. I am a God who forgives iniquities and transgressions and sins. And so this goat is a substitute for the people. And it is carried away outside the camp. And it, when it leaves, figuratively all the sins of Israel go with it. And the camp is a clean camp again. The camp has been purified by this goat. Now, if we turn to the book of John and we look at Jesus last night we see Jesus saying I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming he has no claim on me but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Jesus tells us, Satan has no claim on him. Jesus did not offer himself up in any part to Satan. But can you see how Satan was involved in the crucifixion? Surely. We read that Satan entered into Judas. We hear Jesus at other times saying, but this is his hour. Right? This is the hour of darkness. And what do we read in Hebrews chapter 13? We read that Jesus, we read the bodies of those animals whose blood is burned is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. I think, I think what we see here in terms of the work of Jesus is that our sin was confessed and laid on His head, so to speak. And He took it away from us. And there on the cross, as He hung there, 
though God was in full control. Satan was not Lord. Satan was not reigning as Jesus was on the cross. No doubt, Jesus was tormented by Satan and all the powers of hell at the same time as God poured His wrath upon Him. We read Him saying, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? The people mocked. The people ridiculed. Just as Satan had appeared at times in his earthly life to tempt him. No doubt Satan, where, where else would Satan have been at the moment that Jesus was crucified? Do you think he was like in the Far East? Or like way down in Australia? Or something like this? He's a localized being. And when he had entered into Judas to betray Jesus, no doubt he was there at the cross as Jesus died. And what we see is Jesus being treated as a sinner. Go from me. The Father hides His face. And the Son bears the wrath of God and makes propitiation for our sins as the dead goat did in Leviticus chapter 16. But also, Jesus goes outside the camp, away from us, and the, He is shunned by the Father, as it were, treated as a sinner, though He had Himself committed no iniquity, no transgression, no sin, and doubtless, part of what He suffered was the mocking and the, the torment of a Satan who thought that he had conquered and thought that he was winning. More was going on than simply the human level of mockery and the physical torment. In any case, whether Azazel is the name of a demon or simply the name of a place, I think that the theology that we draw from Leviticus 16 is basically the same in that Jesus carries away our sin from us. It goes from us to Him and He takes it away. As far as the East is from the West, so far has He removed our transgression from us. And so the wrath of God that we deserve has been propitiated. It was turned away onto Jesus as the wrath of God fell upon the dead goat in Leviticus 16. And our dirtiness was placed upon the live goat, so to speak. Upon Jesus as the live goat in Leviticus 16. And He carries it away from us. And so we are both clean and there is no judgment pending. There is no liability to God's judgment remaining for us. Because Jesus has fulfilled the twofold prefiguration of atonement that we see in Leviticus chapter 16. So Jesus is the priest and Jesus is the animals also who died in atonement here in this chapter. Jesus is the true thing. All of these ceremonies are copies. But these ceremonies bring out the richness of what Jesus has done for us. If we understand and we read Leviticus 16 with the lens that, hey, these are copies of the true things, what can we learn then about the true things by looking at the copies? Last week I used the analogy of a police force that distributes a picture of a wanted man. That is a copy of the true thing. 
The picture itself is not the man. But by studying the copy, you learn something about the true thing so that when you see it, you can arrest it. When we study the copies, we learn about the true things. As we read Leviticus 16, we see something of the richness of the work and the ministry of Christ Jesus, acting as a priest, acting as the goats, making the atonement that we need, bringing us westward back into God's presence, reconciling the tension that is latent in God's statement that He is a God who forgives iniquity and transgressions and sins, and yet by no means clears the guilty.